Good morning and welcome to Grace at all of our locations and congratulations, you survived the polar vortex. Yes, give yourself a round of applause. Like it feels like spring, doesn't it? I mean, when there is like an 80 degree swing in real feel, like, yeah, it's spring. Spring is here in February and I'm so glad for that. We are starting a new series where we'll be talking about some of the lies that we have come to believe. And then we're going to open up the Bible and see the truth from God's word, the truth that can set us free. Because whether you know it or not, we have come to believe certain lies. Lies about God, lies about ourselves, lies about life or struggles and circumstances. And we don't know necessarily that they're lies, but we've come to live by them. And because we believe them, we live our lives according to those lies. And here's the thing about lies. Once you believe a lie to be true, it can have the same power over you as if it were true, even if it's not. So a lie has a, has, has a tremendous power. It's because once you believe a lie, it can change the way you actually live. So let me give you a couple little examples, and there's nothing uh, really significant about these lies, but they, they don't have any major implications, but you can see how it affects, these lies affect the way a person lives. So one example, the first example is carrots. When your parents, growing up, uh, when your, parent, your pro- parents probably told you that uh, eating carrots will actually improve your what? Your eyesight. Yeah, right. Except they don't. It's, it's a lie. Uh, your parents lied to you. And many of you have eaten carrots and still eat carrots because you believe that lie that you think, oh, eating a carrot uh, will h- help improve my eyesight. Well, if you look into that history, uh, that lie is actually rooted in, uh, and this is going to sound like it's made up, but it's, it's rooted in World War II propaganda. Yeah, because the British Army didn't want to get out that their pilots had radar on their aircrafts, and so they needed some reason to explain why their pilots were incredibly accurate in shooting down their enemies. And so they spread the word that their pilots had great vision from eating, carrots. And apparently one of the writers of the cartoon Bugs Bunny got wind of this and believed it to be true and worked it into the cartoon. And the result was that millions of homes were bombarded with the message that the reason why rabbits have such good eyesight is because, well, they eat carrots. Well, somewhere along the line, this lie actually just became true. And it became so prevalent, so now tens of millions of children and adults today eat carrots in the hopes of improving their eyesight, except it's not true. It doesn't work that way, right? Uh, And in fact, uh, I'll have some people even argue with me, well, carrots have vitamin A, and vitamin A will help improve your eyesight. No, 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 no. The only way that uh, carrots will improve your eyesight is if you are vitamin A deficient, you can suffer from something called night blindness. But if you live in the U.S., the chance of you having night blindness is nearly zero. So carrots don't actually improve your eyesight. Here's another example. A lot of us were told growing up that uh, we couldn't go swimming back in the pool right after eating. Right? That you had to wait for like 30 minutes because the food had to digest. And if you went right back in the pool, there was a greater risk of uh, getting a muscle cramp and you might drown. So it's really dangerous. 
So uh, how many of you at all of our locations in Curious were told some variation of that statement, right? Yeah, look, almost all of us have been told that, that it wasn't safe, and, and so, uh, but except it, that's not how it works. Uh, it's not any more dangerous to go back in the water right after you eat than if you were to wait 30 minutes. The only danger that going back into the water poses is if you don't know how to swim, right? <laughs> Eating has nothing to do with it. Now, some of you hear those two examples, and uh, you hear that it's not true, and there's still some part of you that's like, mm, ah, yeah, that, that, you're, not, you're, you're wrong, right? No, except, uh, except I'm not wrong. They're lies, right? It's not true. And we believe certain lies because they're just hard to recognize. They don't come out, it's not obvious or blatant. And there's two conditions in which lies are really hard to recognize. The first one is this. It's when it is so widely accepted by many people. And so we've been told something and it's really difficult to believe. Uh, and that's because everybody else believes the same thing. And there's a lot of power in peer pressure. The fact that everybody believes something because you don't want to be the one parent that tells your kid like, well, well no, I, I don't buy that whole, you know, lie about it's okay to go swimming after uh, um, you eat. So you let your kid go into the pool and, and then you don't want to be the parent on the evening news, right? You don't want to be that person. So you just buy into that lie. The other reason, the other condition in which it's really hard to recognize a lie is when you've been told it for such a long time. And so for many of us, we've heard that about swimming right after eating and, and what, since we were kids. And uh, the longer you believe a lie to be true, the harder, it is, the harder it is to change your thinking about it. We've just come to accept it. We've always believed it. And because of that, it's just hard to change how we think. So, so much so that even after hearing that this is a lie, that it's okay to go swimming right after you eat, there are still some parents here today who later this summer, when your kids, right after eating lunch, are like, hey, can I go back in the pool? You are not going to let the truth set your kids free. And you are going to say, no, you need to wait 15 minutes and let your food digest, or you'll get a muscle cramp and you'll drown, and all, you're not going to let the truth set your kids free, right? Because uh, you've just believed this for such a long time. Now, it's not that big of a deal when we're talking about carrots or, or swimming after eating, but here's what I want us to consider. Is it possible that we have bought into some lies? Some lies that are much more significant, that have some major implications on our lives. Is it possible that we've accepted some things to just be true because so many people believe that or we've heard that for so long and it's really having a significant impact on our lives? See, it's one thing to, to buy into the lie that it's not safe to swim after eating. It's another thing to buy into the lie that, for example, you will never be good enough. You don't have what it takes. And if you buy into that lie, right, and, and there's so many variations of that, kind of like, you know, like so, so many different lies that we, we're going to be exploring. Like, you know, you've made too many mistakes. You, you will never change. You will always struggle with that, right? God doesn't really care about you. You can stop whenever you want with this addiction or behavior. And besides, nobody's ever going to find out if you believe those lies, suddenly uh, you're giving them tremendous power over your lives. And again, going back to what I've been saying, because when you believe a lie to be true, you give it the same power as if it were true. 
And so what we want to do is expose some of these lies because the Bible tells us that we have an enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and one of his primary strategies is to get you and I to buy into a lie that he knows once we buy into it, he's got us. He's got us wrapped around his finger. And so uh, in the Gospel of John, John says this in chapter 8 about our enemy, Satan, for there is no truth in him. For he is a liar and the father of lies. I mean, everything he says is a lie. He's a master manipulator. And and so what we want to do is expose those lies that he has repeated again and again and again. Expose those lies that uh, he has gotten a lot of people to buy into because they're really hard to recognize. On the other hand, Jesus comes and he identifies himself as the truth. And he says to the people who believed in him, earlier in this chapter, he says this, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So again, we want to recognize those lies that we live by sometimes, and then we want to be set free by the truth of God's word. And so today, I want to address one of the enemy's favorite lies that he whispers to both men and women alike. And here's what this lie sounds like. It goes something like this. You're not good enough. You don't have what it takes. You don't know what you're doing. You're a fraud. In fact, you're a failure. You are messed up. How can anybody love you? I mean, there's variations of this lie, but the enemy whispers that into our minds and our hearts. And he says, look, you're not valuable. You're not lovable. You're not capable, you're not qualified, you're not competent, you are not fit. I mean, look at you. You are a sorry excuse as a parent. You are messing up your kids. You think you're any good at your job? And you come to church on Sunday to really? You think you you call yourself a child of God? And he whispers these lies. In fact, the very first lie that the enemy told to the first woman uh, in the Bible, Eve, played on her own insecurities. The the whole insecurity that, well, I'm not good enough. So follow along as we walk through the story in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan inhabits the, the form of a serpent, and he whispers lies to Eve in particular. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say? I mean, and here's what the enemy does. He gets you to question what God says. Because if he could get you to question God's word, God's truth, then he could fill that void with whatever lie that he wants to tell you. And and then as you read the story, uh, the serpent says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And then the woman replies, no, no, God didn't say we couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. And then in verse 3, here's what she says, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Here's the thing. God did say, don't eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. God never said to Eve, don't touch it. He just said, don't eat it. And here is Eve creating this man-made rule, human-made rule. She is being more demanding and stringent on herself than God is. She's making God out to be like this mean dictator who, doesn't, who isn't looking out for her best. So she says, no, no, God said, don't even touch it or you will die. And here's what the enemy does in verse 4. He says, you will not certainly die. You see what he does? He contradicts God's word. 
In fact, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I mean, here's the thing. There is a little bit of truth in what the serpent is saying, right? They didn't die, at least not physically. They did spiritually, but physically they're still alive. So he says, you're not going to die. There's a little bit of truth in that. And then he says, your eyes will be open. There's a little bit of truth in that. Yeah, but in all the wrong ways. So now all they see is shame and guilt where once there was innocence and virtue. And so the enemy twists God's word so subtly that it doesn't seem like a blatant lie. And that's what he does. The enemy sells us a lie by giving us a little bit of truth. And that's why these lies are so hard to recognize. He plays on Eve's insecurities. He says, you know, Eve, you don't really know that much. In fact, you're pretty naive. But if you eat this fruit, then you will be just like God. And here is a tragic irony. She was already like God. When God created Adam and Eve, the Bible says he made them in his own likeness. They were already like God. They they couldn't do anything to be more like him. They were made in his image. And that is the irony, the tragic irony of this lie, where Satan takes it and twists it for his own purposes to play to our own securities. And notice that the lie began with just a question, just a little sneer that created doubt in God's good intent towards her. You see, the enemy is smart enough to not engage you and I in a full frontal assault. He doesn't tell us these blatant lies. Instead, he sneaks in through the back door and he sells us a lie by giving us a little bit of truth. And I think one of the ways that he does that for us to buy into that lie that you're not good enough, that you don't have what it takes, is... It's just in our culture. We fall into the comparison trap all the time. This is one of his main ways for for Satan and the enemy to get us to believe into this lie. With the rise of social media, I think it's almost impossible to not come across and to avoid the comparison trap. You scroll down your social media feed and it's almost inevitable. You will get caught up in comparisons, right? And, And there are a lot of great things about social media. I'm not against it. I'm on it. But let's be clear about what it is. It's not real. I think we all know that. It's just a facade with a lot of people presenting the best versions of themselves to everybody else they know. And if that's the case, do you think it's a healthy and wise thing to give your heart and mind to on a daily basis, multiple times a day, just to see the best versions of everybody you know? I mean, it's like getting somebody's Christmas letter every day of the year. (laughs) How annoying is that? I mean, once a year, that's okay, right? To hear and to read all all about your perfect family and all your amazing accomplishments and all your travels to these exotic places. But I don't want to get that every single day of the year. That's not a good thing, I think, for the most part, to give your mind and heart to those kind of things where it plays on your insecurities and it gives more weight when, when the enemy uh, whispers into you, you're not good enough. You don't have what it takes. You are messed up. You're messing up your kids. Right? Sometimes I wish that we could just 
name, uh, change the name of some of these social media uh, uh, sites, right? Just at least so we would all know what it's really about. Right? Like, what if we called Facebook, instead of calling it Facebook, we called it like facade, right? Hey, are you on facade? Oh, yeah, I, I am too. Hey, I'll friend you. Hey, thanks for, uh, take, thanks for accepting my facade friend, right? <laughs> hey, you're my facade friend. I have like 3,000 facade friends, right? That's awesome, right? Or imagine calling Instagram for what it really is. Uh, I haven't posted on my illusion account lately, <laughs> and this picture that I took, man, that's a great illusion. I got to post it. But we don't always recognize it as such, and we fall into this trap of I'm not good enough. And, and there's, so, there's a way in which social media can become a form of pornography where we are just staring at airbrushed versions of everybody else, and it just makes you feel insecure and discontent. I read an article this past week where uh, the author talked about this behavior that, uh, that, that I'm sure you've heard of has taken social media by storm, right? And uh, uh, it's called the humble brag, right? It's a boast that's disguised as modesty. And this author says, and parents, especially parents, are really great at the humble brag. And she says this, uh, the author, this seems to be a hobby for a lot of moms these days because they want to post something on facade, Facebook, that will make other people think that they're awesome moms, but they do it in a way that comes across as humble and unassuming. So here's an example from my own social media feed, and I've changed the details to uh, protect the innocent or or the not-so-innocent, but here's an example of a humble brag. Um, So one person says, it is impossible to get get Jake out of the house for school this morning. All he wants to do is play the piano. (laughs) So she hooks you in by talking about this every mom gripe of, my son is never ready for school on time. And then she says, because he's a musical prodigy. That's what I got going on in my life. How about you? <laughs> and it's always interesting when I talk to people, many of you, uh, when I catch up with you because I see something on Twitter or Twisted Reality or Facebook, Facade, and I ask you about it, it's always interesting to kind of find out the reality behind the humble brag. So here's a couple of examples. Uh, one, one time somebody... Um, I talked to a mom, and she put something to this effect on her social media. Hey, we're going in so many directions. We're so busy that we are taking a break from hockey season for my son this year. Uh, hashtag, like, kids be kids. So I talked to her, and I found, find out, like, yeah, you know, I missed hockey signups for my son, and, and we had a huge fight over it. Right? Uh, hashtag, what are you, too busy Facebooking? <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's a reality. I talked to another dad. Uh, who, who uh, posted on social media, we are taking a stand. No more iPads for the kids for a long time. Hashtag family time. And, and I talked to him, hey, man, that's great. You know, tell me more about it. And he says to me, man, my, my kid dropped the iPad and broke it, and I lost my temper. Right? I'm like, oh, okay, that, that's reality. Hashtag you probably sounded demon-possessed, right? I mean, that humble brag reality. Look, it's not real. It's a facade. And I just want us to recognize this and to guard our hearts. I'm not, I'm not saying this because 
I'm saying never go on social media or I want you to feel bad. I'm talking about this because I want us to be free of this lie that we often believe. Because how many of us, before we go to bed, the last thing we do is check our social media feed and we come to believe the illusion of how wonderful everybody else's life is and how hard your life is and how you will never measure up. And so we are constantly looking at facades and illusions. This past week I was at a coffee shop and a young woman came to, uh, sat down next, uh, at the table next to mine and here she had her tall latte, which looked really good and tempting. And she had her perfect avocado toast, uh, lightly toasted. And literally, for the next 20 minutes, she sat there with her phone, taking 35 different angles, trying to find the perfect angle, right? And you know that angle, where it's like the food looks great, you can see the window, the sun is shining, and there's nobody around, so that everybody who sees it is like, Oh my goodness, she is experiencing peace and nirvana. Oh, like I want that. For like 20 minutes, I'm sitting there, couldn't do work. And I'm not trying to like obviously stare at her, but I'm like, like sideways staring at her. Like, this, like I can't believe this. Like she's not content. She finally posts it. And then after that, for the next 20 minutes, she's talking to, on the phone with her friend, talking about her, how miserable her life is. She's stressed about the upcoming exam. She's behind. And I thought, like, yes, this is facade. This is illusion. And so the enemy loves to get us into that place. And let's just, right, let's recognize. And if, 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 if you struggle with this, I just want to encourage you, like, to limit some of your time uh, on social media. Again, not because it's bad or evil, but to guard your heart and your mind and direct those to things of the Lord. And do you know how I know that this is true of all of us? Because I see it all the time here at Grace. Church can be a lot like social media, where on Sunday mornings we come and we present the best versions of ourselves. I mean, look, you may be here this morning, you're like, look around. Everybody seems so happy and, and like they're, they're really engaged and they want to grow in their faith. And here I am. I'm going through such hard times and I don't even know if I believe in Jesus. Look. Let me tell you, we are all struggling. We are all broken. I don't care how beautiful we look on the outside. And this is why church on Sundays is, this is just the first step in us walking together, uh, doing life together and becoming more like Jesus. This is why we say, hey, we want you to get into a community group because it's in that setting. And I experienced this in my community group too where you could finally take off your mask and you could say, yeah, this is what I'm struggling with. Now, some of you are thinking like, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, I, 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 I don't look at those posts and I, I don't feel insecure or jealous. I'm actually the one that posts all the awesome pictures. Let me say this. There have been studies done that show that when somebody is having financial troubles, do you think they are more likely or less likely to post pictures of themselves, for example, on a shopping trip? What do you think? They're actually more likely when somebody is having marital uh, struggles, they are more likely to post pictures of a romantic date at an expensive restaurant. Now, none of you are going to want to post pictures at a romantic restaurant tonight, right? Because you're going to be like, oh, they're going to think we're struggling. It is amazing how often and recurring this happens where somebody will email me, call me, step into my office, and say, Sung, our marriage is on the rocks. 
We are having so much trouble. And I will literally say to them, I just saw you, like you just celebrated your whatever anniversary and I saw these romantic pictures of you at, at like the chop house like two weeks ago. What happened? Why does that happen? Because they don't want anybody to know. That was like the one great experience that they had in, in, in like a, a, a marriage that is just struggling and on the rocks. They're afraid that somebody's gonna see past the mask. They want to hide all of their insecurities. I had somebody else tell me this, you know, so, uh, I'll read parts of their email. So I really struggle with this whole issue of I will never be good enough. And it fuels my perfectionism so that I want everything in my life to be perfect. But I'm realizing that is just simply unattainable. But my family and my, even my own heart has begun to pay the price for that. I become angry because I'm not perfect. And then I feel guilty for getting so angry. Finally, I find myself tired and worn out and ready to quit. And as we were conversing uh, a while back, he was just telling me about how sometimes when he gets to that place of being tired and exhausted and worn out, he just wants to find a form of escape, whether it's Netflix or any other thing, where he could just emotionally detach from the stress of life and he could turn his attention to something, some other area of his life where he won't feel like he's not good enough, where he doesn't feel like I, he doesn't have what it takes. And so sometimes for us, that could be a, a new career, a new relationship, maybe the newest home project, maybe the kids' education, somewhere where we're not going to feel like a failure. And the enemy loves us because if he could get you and I to buy into that lie, he has us in our hands. If he could get us to really feel tired and worn out, then over time, that pressure will have us fall apart and, and just break. And here's the truth about this whole idea of I'm not good enough. Like most of the enemy's lies, this one has a little bit of truth in it. And so if you're sitting here going, yeah, you know, like I'm messed up. Something, you, you don't know what I've done. I don't have what it takes as a parent. I'm never going to measure up. I, I'm never going to be good enough. Yeah, you're right. There is some truth to that. But what makes that a lie is that that's not the whole truth, right? That's what makes it a lie. The truth is you don't have what it takes. You will never measure up. You will never be good enough. But if you have Christ in your life, you may be weak, but in him you will be strong. You may be broken and imperfect, but his grace is sufficient. You may, be, you may have made many mistakes and done things you wish you, like you could do over, but his mercies are new every morning. And this is where the good news is. It has to begin with you saying, yeah, I'm never going to be good enough. And then it's really coming to embrace the fact that God so loved you, not just the world, but you, that he sent his son to die on your behalf, to give his life which paid the penalty for your sins, past, present, and future. Let me say this. The good news isn't just that Jesus died for you, but God is continuing to do a work in you right now. Even as you sit here this morning in your seats, God is working in you, transforming you. He has taken away the penalty of your sin. He is now, he is continuing to work to remove the power of sin in your life so that day after day, month after month, year after year, you are becoming more like Jesus till that one day when we will see Jesus face to face and he will wipe away the presence of sin all together, and we will be together in glory and sing hallelujah. That is the good news. 
And so, friends, let us embrace that. Let us embrace the truth of who God says we are. Let's cast out those lies, and let's do some heart examination this morning. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray together. And so, God, we come offering ourselves to you today. And for those of us who think we, we aren't deceived by any lies, we, we are deceived by the greatest lie, that somehow we have life figured out, that somehow we have you and, and figured out. But God, we humbly come asking you to open the eyes of our hearts that your word, your truth would expose some of the lies that though we may never say them with our lips, we live according to them by our lives. And so God, would you, con would you continue to do your work? Would you do heart surgery? Would you expose us to your truth that we might live according to your truth and that your truth would finally set us free? So God, you are good, you are powerful, you are our savior and redeemer, and we come to worship you today. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. There's some good news this morning. We're going to take a minute to respond um, to Sung's challenge to confront the lies that we find ourselves believing. We're going to respond first in the way we do every week, which is by receiving our offering. Last week, Sung's sermon was about moving from the mindset of scarcity to abundance. And there's a lie there, right, that we'll never quite have enough or that maybe the next dollar will make us happy, that we need to hoard our resources. And the truth is the opposite. The Bible says that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so we receive our offering because we want to give to God first in order to honor Him. We want to save second because it creates room in our life, margin in our life. And then we want to live on the rest because it produces contentment. So we're going to confront the lie of scarcity this morning as we receive our offering. The Connections team is going to start passing baskets. You can put your connection card in there if you're looking for more information about our church or you want more information on the IF gathering or joining a ministry team. You can give this morning. You can give uh, via text or you can give online. But it's truly a way for us to stand for truth. The second way that we're